Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast series, where we aim to explore the stories behind education research and practice as part of the multi-country research on improving systems of education endeavour, funded by UK Aid, Australian Aid, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Hello and welcome to this joint RISE BSc podcast episode. I'm Salima Samji, Director of the Building State Capability Program at the Center for International Development at Harvard University. Today, I'm speaking to Nangamso Mtsetse, who is CEO at Fundawande, an NGO that works to catalyze improvements in foundational literacy and numeracy for children in South Africa. In this episode, we talk about building local teams creating a culture of measurement, reflection, and learning, and being intentional. We also speak about how to work within the system you are in. Welcome, Nanganso. We're really excited to have you on the RISE podcast this morning. It is a great pleasure to join the podcast, have a conversation with you, and share some of the work that we're doing, and I think also learning from from all the other conversations that have been happening around the RISE podcast series. So let's get started. Nangam, so I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what Fundawande does as, as an organization for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with your work. Sure. So... Um... Who is Fundawande? Fundawande is a non-profit organization that is based in uh, the tip of Africa, southern Africa. Um, we are an organization um, that is on a mission to try and get all kids um, in foundation phase reading for meaning and calculating for confidence. So it's a big, it's a big goal, but uh, we 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 do we do believe in in. in um, uh, be hags and uh, sort of bold goals and courageous um, uh, goals. So that's what we're trying to do. Currently, we are piloting or have RCTs in three provinces. Um, and the very first one is in Eastern Cape. And there we're really trying to answer the question of, you know, how how does teachers support in a form of literacy coaching and mathematics coaching um, help improve learning outcomes. So there, it's really looking at like putting in a coach in a school, resourcing and training the teacher in a nutshell. And then the second intervention is what I often say, it's the dual crisis of our country. So there's two big problems, many problems, but probably for me, two big problems in South Africa. It's youth unemployment. We've got up to about I think the recent stats said uh, 76% of the youth in South Africa are unemployed. And we've got a, a, a early grade learning poor outcomes. So there, what we're trying to do is to explore with unemployed youth that have a metric. Um, how do we use them in our very typical large school context, under-resourced? Um, I mean, if you think of Limpopo, the average class size is one teacher to 45 kids. Um, but we work in schools where there's one teacher and like almost 70 kids. So how do you effectively recruit an unemployed youth that has a matric? How do you effectively train them? Um, what type of program they must be following in order to relieve some burden uh, or to assist the, the teacher in these contexts um, towards improving learning outcomes? And then the last one is um, Western Cape intervention, one that excites me because there's very, very, very fertile ground and probably one that is uh, 
one step closer to this whole idea of scale up and what does a provincial-wide intervention look like. And there, really, we're trying to answer the question of, should you capacitate the system, you know, prepare the system, um, you know, you train the subject advisors, uh, you co-create the materials with the curriculum advisors, um, you know, how does it scale and is it able to scale? And how well does the government system sustain um, its learning gains over time? So I think really that's sort of what we do uh, or what we're trying to uh, resolve and sort of the three models that we're currently experimenting with. You were among the first people hired to work at Funda One Day. What motivated you to join them? So, I mean, funny enough is that um, uh, the predecessor, Nick Spall, probably needed to convince me over a two-year period uh, to, to, to join from the one day. So it wasn't uh, an initial, immediate, obvious uh, a choice. Um, but, but just to share a bit of background is that um, I come from a uh, university setup where, uh, you know, lectured at UNISA, linguistics, applied linguistics, and also worked on the Pearl's um, international assessment, um, coordinated the African language uh, assessment instruments uh, mostly. And I was starting really to get bored in a sense of um, the work that, that, it, that there always seemed to be misalignment between research and practice. Um, we spend a lot of time in South Africa talking about the problem, but very little, um, you know, what actually works. So I think I started becoming quite inquisitive of understanding, okay, cool, we know we, we underperform um, every four years. Um, I mean, we, we would do is to do research of text analysis and, and all these different uh, uh, interesting and very exciting research on, on applied linguistics. But I was looking to say, how do I transfer this into an applied, you know, practical way where it would then shift uh, teacher practices. So at the time when Nick approached me, I think I was still very, you know, interested in getting my hands dirty on on, on uh, syntax analysis. But I think, you know, where I realized to say we need actual things that will fly on the ground and I need a space or I need a project or a program that will that will allow me to learn a lot more about how kids read, how kids teach reading. And now, I mean, we've also brought on both mathematics, you know. So, so, so I would say that may have been the the turning point um, for me to be like, okay, cool. It's it's a, this fertile ground at that time at Funda One Day. I think uh, the founding uh, CEO was still, you know, trying. I mean, typical setup. So I really came at a good time where there was a lot of leeway and freedom of what are the things that I actually want to experiment with inside the classroom. So I was fortunate, very fortunate enough um, to be part of creating uh, and, and co-thinking what, what the program that now we are, we are implementing looks like. Wonderful. It's great to see how it was your wanting to move from research to practice and that it took Nick two, I didn't know that, that it took him two years to convince you. What was the final, the, the final thing that you were like, okay, fine, I'm going to do this for you? <laughs> well, probably I must say it was one of the findings that I had actually found in my master's degree. Um, and basically I was looking at test bias and through translations 
Um, I mean, many of these multi-language, cross-language assessments, you know, in South Africa, we've got 11, 11 official language. There's a lot of contentious debates around, you know, has it been translated correctly? What about context? What about, you know, all of those things? Um, so I was comparing my home language, Isikosa, um, to English, which most of these assessments um, are translated from English into the African languages. And um, when I sort of, it was a sort of a two-part, you know, secondary analysis of the purse assessment, and I spoke to numerous of teachers in various different parts in the Eastern Cape, you know, trying to get their, their inputs to say, well, here's, here's, here's an assessment that has been translated, you know, using your own professional judgment, you know, can you grade it? Uh, do you think it's pitched at the right level? And so on. So, I mean, very quickly, um, I, I realized that there was inconsistency. I mean, these are all the same, well, not same teachers, but teachers that are, sit, are teaching in similar contexts, same home language, all no fee schools, mostly in all rural areas, but the understanding of how to teach reading and how, um, you know, how do you grade assessment and text was very, very, very different. So I think for me then was like, okay, cool. If we're having discrepancies on teachers' understanding, um, you know, I'd like to unpack this. You know, why are teachers, why are they different, so drastically different approaches, um, but yet it's the same language. Surely, I mean, in English, you know, there's there's a systematic way in which you teach language, you know. Um, so I think for me that was probably the like, okay, cool. Like I want to be on the ground. I want to understand and, and, and sort of um, figure out the nuts and bolts of, of that. So you found a problem that really mattered to you that you wanted to be part of solving. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> at the Building State Capability Program at Harvard and throughout our BSc podcast series, we talk about the value of problem-driven iterative approaches and how these can help us solve fundamental and complex problems. At Fundawande, you use an iterative learning approach to find context-appropriate solutions. Can you share an example of how this works in practice? Sure. So, I mean, look, I think given, given where we are as an organization, we are five years um, and we sort of towards the end of our first round of RCTs um, and we really went into this um, being quite blunt and open about this is this this is this is a long-term game for us um 78 percent of kids in south africa cannot read for meaning so we generally do think that um and we have taken the approach of you know we we build and then we go back and reflect uh we reiterate and then we go back and test again um but along the lines we have probably seen some elements, if you think about, about a, a, a school bag or a, a briefcase or toolbox, there's been some small little tools that we were we have been able to say, okay, right, that works, okay? Advocates, um, policymakers, government in the same room, let's, you know, get this to scale. And there have been many times where we've actually been like, mm, we thought it was going to work, it didn't work. So I probably can give you two examples. Um, the one is... Um, uh, we initially started off with a lesson plan approach, um, mainly targeted at uh, at the teacher level, um, and uh, the teacher received the the resources and the training to be able to teach the reading. Now, it, I often joke and I say it's a, it, it was a box of goodie bags. You know, teachers got lesson plans, posters, reading books, library books, 
all these sorts of things, right? Uh, GGR booklets, you name it. It was quite, uh, it was quite, uh, yeah, it was, it was really a lucky packet uh, for lack of a better term. And we, I mean, after the first year of implementation, teachers are like, these resources are nice. They're cool. You know, I don't have these in my day-to-day classrooms, but what the hell? You know, I don't like, I'm first, I'm using my assessment booklet here and then I must, oops, now I must pick up my poster. I'm, I'm, I'm everywhere, you know, and, and it, and it, and it, the, the feedback that we were getting constantly from the coaches and, and the teachers themselves is that, you know, it actually takes a lot to be able to, to, to change teacher practice. And, and rather than adding things, um, what we needed to do on the lesson learned here was, to prioritize and to simplify our program so that teachers at multiple levels can deliver the program. So from after, imagine, after one year, one year we went back to the drawing board and now we are implementing the workbook approach, which is a much more less complex, less moving parts. We call it one-stop shop where a teacher gets a teacher guide and then the learner gets their booklet and then the teacher Every day, it's like you just turn onto one page. Monday, this is what I'm doing. Next page, two, and you don't have to go anywhere else uh, or have to access things anywhere else than that teacher guide. And then, obviously, for the learner themselves, the actual workbook. So, um, so that's one example I can speak to. Probably one of teacher training development. So, we initially started with the whole formal university, uh, you know, teacher training development. And I think that has and is still, you know, um, adding a lot of value. We're seeing a lot of other institutions wanting to adapt that course, which was one of the first, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of advanced certificate courses that were uh, accredited for this new teaching framework that was issued by the department two years ago. But what we also learned that, uh, our education system, most of the teachers, a bulk of them are like 45 plus. A lot of them are not interested in being enrolled in a university and, and, and attending classes every week or whatever the case is. We needed to rethink a, a different model that we can touch or access or spread um, uh, or get a lot more teachers uh, yeah, accessing, accessing the 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 course and, and and I mean with the university prices I mean it cost us probably over two years it was a part-time course it cost a teacher 25,000 rand that's probably about uh in US dollars if I'm not mistaken uh, probably about yeah one one thousand two hundred dollars uh more or less so we needed to go back we we're like okay we're not touching the numbers that we should be touching at the rate that this problem is severe uh, so we then uh, created a much more less academic, dense, um, a free training, self-paced uh, course um, that is housed um, on our website. And now we've partnered up with actual government teacher development directorates um, that they're using that as their standard training course uh, for teacher development. So here is something that it, it did work. It is working. It has set sort of the golden standard of what a program at a university level looks like. But we felt that we were not, um, we, the mover was being, the needle was being moved relatively slow and we needed to be able to get as many teachers um, to be able to access this co- a course, course at a no cost, self-paced, 
um, but you get the exact basics or at least the, the, the fundamental content knowledge that you would need to be able to teach reading. Thank you for sharing those examples. You know, I like the second one where something already works, but you think about meeting the teachers where they're at, not where you think they may be where they are. Um, and then your first example, where it really is about integrating your tools into a one-stop shop and simplifying, right? The power of simplicity. I particularly like this one year, like that's a lot of investment that you're already doing this. And then you go back to the drawing board. How do you create an organizational culture that allows you to even say, okay, we have been not wasting time, but we can do this much more effectively, right? So again, it's the framing of how do you create that culture in an organization to allow you to pivot when you need to do that? Yeah. Um, and look, and maybe, and maybe another side of this could be that at the timing that this all happened, we, we, we were, we were, we were operating like a startup, uh, organization. You know, we were, we were all cramped up in a little small, uh, apartment, uh, that was like literally bedroom apartment that was converted as a, <laughs> as an office space, right? So it was, it wasn't a time where, like I mentioned earlier on, where there was a lot of flexibility. Um, at that time where, um, and still, I mean, we, 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 we quite, um, we're quite intentional about, about being reflective, um, what we do. And we are in particularly, um, we take our, uh, our data, um, uh, sort of feedback very seriously, you know, um, so, so, so I think we, there's been, a, there's been things like, um, and I mean, also this is, you know, uh, respect to Nick to be able to identify the the, the correct talent uh, that is required. Like I mentioned to you, like he probably courted me for two years. At that moment, I was like, "Why are we having this conversation every time when I meet up with you?" You know, I'm not coming just from one. <laughs> uh, but clearly, he had the vision to say, "Okay, if I'm trying to build a team that looks like this, what are the expertise, you know, um, that I'm looking for? Who are the people that are going to be here for the long run? Um, and actually, I think most importantly in a, in a South African context, African context is to say, um, we've got an influx of a lot of programs that are dominated by internationals, right? We get a lot of, you name it, from all these various of countries that want to tell us about how, how you implement a reading program in, in, in London, in Eastern Cape, where kids have to walk, you know, you know, over rivers and whatever the case is. And I think one of, one of the secret ingredients is, was, is to being very intentional to say, it must be those people that understand that context better, that lead the, the, the content development, that lead the programs. Um, it must be the people who have, um, the, I mean, the language, uh, expertise and, and, people that can relate to the teachers, to the parents, to the principals and the government and, and, and so on. So it happened organically. I, I'm very, I'm, I don't want to say it wasn't a, this is what we want our culture to, to be like. Um, it probably meant quite a visionary outlook or thinking about what is the type of talent that I need or that we need. Um, and where do I tap in? You know, who are the networks and who are the people? And also, mind you, hey, Salima, uh, is that it's not always um, that we were able to find talent. I think also being quite um, quite intentional about capacity building um, to say, okay, cool, you know, we may not find the 
um, just this, I mean, you will find, but I mean, just lack of example, we may not find the Isikosa uh, language writer. Cool, but you're stuck with Nangam, so who probably is coming out of a university space who understands a lot about linguistics, but how do we develop her and get her to sort of think at that wavelength where it would be helpful in a practical um in a practical sense? So I do think um and really long wooden around Table Mountain, um one of the seven uh, world wonders tourism um in the world here in Cape Town. Is to say I'd summarize it into probably talent is crucial, 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 crucial. Um, context, bringing along the people that understand that context, and not to bring them along as lower doing admin project man, as bringing them along as experts, as 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 people that um, are heard and they, 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 their knowledge about those systems is quite critical. And I think the third one would be giving people the the right exposure and opening up their networks in order for them to thrive in the work that we're doing. Yep, I love it. This, uh, you know, your, what you called the secret ingredients, the flexibility, the reflecting on feedback. And I think this intentionality, what you talk about the local talent, the context, the language, being able to identify with the teachers and the students. It's that intentionality of building your team that I think is particularly powerful about Funda Wande. Now, you know, as an NGO focused on improving learning outcomes, you work with a much larger ecosystem of players. You're not the only ones, you're not the only game in town. How do you build authorization and legitimacy to ensure that the work that you're doing can scale? Sure. And I think I probably would also add to that is that, um, and that we're also not the silver bullet <laughs> uh, to, to, to solving the literacy crisis in, in, in South Africa, right? So I think we, we quite, we're very cognizant that as much as, you know, people often are so shocked that how much work we've done in the last five years, that we only have been five years old as an organization, right? Um, I think at the scale that we're operating, I mean, sort of we've got four site offices, RCTs in three provinces. I mean, Fundawande in total is working in about 280 schools. So, so being, really saying, look, there are people in within this broader sector that have been around and there are a lot of lessons learned from some of the work that they have been doing, lessons learned that we can draw from um, already existing organizations. But I think um, I'll speak to probably, what, four or five things is that um, legitimacy and, 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 and authorization, uh, we kind of bought it in sort of one so we've been we've been firstly we, we we are intentional about trying to find pedagogical levers of change what are the things that that that, that are that really change learning outcomes right in particularly within the current systems education system setup we're not trying to uh, burden the system we're not trying to be like oh add this i mean we learned this earlier on add this add that add that you know, it, it, it often when you talk about scale and now we want government to own this, it becomes tricky. I think the second thing is to remain relevant and responsive to every situation. I mean, COVID is a very good one, for instance. I mean, we went from on-site visits to 
school lockdowns and then we're like okay cool now how how do we respond to this how do we continue supporting the schools that we are doing and how does this fit into the broader conversation within the in the within the south african education sector around things like covert catch-up rotational timetables and so forth so being being uh being quite foresighted about those types of things you know wanting to be part of the table and i know this is probably a very contested um uh, sort of metaphor, um, but also remaining to be thought thought leaders within the sector. Uh, the third one I probably will say is uh, the data story. Um, we, we 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 strive and we 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 proud ourselves. In fact, that we are evidence based NGO. So uh, the, uh, and and quite very heavily on the research. And, and, and we, we believe that that is probably our comparative advantage of many early grade programs in South Africa. So like I said, they've been running for years, but have never been, you know, sort of evaluated, independently evaluated, never sort of clear, like, what is, what, what is the impact and, and, and so forth. So, so for us, we are research intensive. We let our data, not only just as data, but to also keep us um, um, honest. Probably another one I could think of is responsible scale, right? So legitimacy within the broader sector with government and so forth is that to say, we do not advocate for scale when we don't believe or have evidence that something works, right? Um, we, we, we are having conversations now after a few years, there's been data, there's been evidence of things that work, now we can have that conversation. People often say to me, but you're working in three provinces. There are nine provinces in South Africa. Why don't you guys just roll this up? And I'm like, whoa, you know, it's important for us to pilot uh, independent evaluation. And then we will talk about what does then this look like on a national scale. Lastly, and I think probably more critically, is that our interactions are often shaped as we're trying to build a program for the system. Funda Wande, we, we, not, we, we don't want to scale things. We see ourselves as a test ground and as an experiment ground, which feeds into government's initiatives and work. And government must do their job. We're not here to do government's job. We don't plan to be in the 400,000 schools that we have in the country. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the funding for that, in fact. But how do we collectively, with government, partners, policymakers, and so forth, how do we create a package for the system? And we're saying we will be that test ground, right? We will be that experimental ground that I know with government budget constraint, they're not in a, in a, in a good position. So, I mean, I think those, those few things, um, you know, being consistent at it, um, and, and, and I really must say probably are our, our principles that we work by that has in the long run have created the sense of legitimacy, the sense of voice within the sector, key stakeholder partner with many government provincial governments you know um yeah so i hope i hope i've answered your question <laughs> no you absolutely have and i really like in particular your you know it's very clear from everything you talk and how you talk about funda wande the intentionality that you you actually have with everything, with your pilots, with your work, with how you reflect, how you measure, staying true to yourself, but also with how you think about scale. Scale not for the purpose of scale. <laughs> scale when it is the right time, right? And, and I really like that thought. 
Now, as the new CEO of Fundawande, what's your vision? You know, Nick, it took Nick two years to get you there. The organization is five years. You are now the new CEO. Where do you see Fundawande in the next five years? Where do you want to take it? Sure. So um, I think, and, 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 and I think probably the timing of um, the recruitment and the appoint, appointment also, uh, I think it allows it allows me a lot of uh, maneuver room in a sense that one I was I was part of the Fundawanda team, and now we're currently what I call the end of phase one of Fundawanda. So basically, we are at the does it work phase. Our current pilots that we are running in the three provinces. The end line for two of them is at the end of this year, and the end, end line for one additional one is at the end of next year. So it's really an interesting time that now we're going to really be able to measure our impact and really see in the last four years, you know, what are the gains? I know, I know COVID has thrown a little bit of spanner to that, but which means that in the next phase um, uh, for, for, for ourselves, for me, leading the team is now can it scale, right? These different tools that we have, some work, some didn't work, um, and and we're going to get the data to that, um, and really exploring different models of can it scale. Um, so I think for us, for me in particularly, is amplifying our advocacy efforts, um, our continuing to be uh, raising awareness about this critical um, uh, uh, issue often um, playing the role of sort of a convenient, if I may put it in that, in, in that sense, how do you get researchers, policymakers, NGOs, funders under the same room? Um, and I think, I mean, we now, uh, uh, we now sort of already starting to plan one of our interventions, particularly the Western Cape one. I mean, they wanting to roll out our, our program to the targeted low-performing schools. So I think it's very, when we talk about um, these small little things that are able seeds that are planted and are able to grow into you know uh, trees or whatever the case is. Um, uh, for uh, I mean, it's going to be critical on you know does it does it scale and is it sustainable for the system as well. So and I think other than that, um, sort of trying to figure out what can scale, can it scale? Because now we know what does work and what doesn't work. I would probably also add. Um, um really as a as a internally as a team now we're going to have these all of this information we want to be able to bed down a bit we want to be digging deeper now and really trying to understand what has been those levers of change you know uh, and why um and 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 really just probably going through another round of re reiteration um so it's kind of like a life cycle you know like you plan, you design, you implement, reflect, redesign, and, and so on and so forth. But I think there is many windows of opportunities for us um, to really start tapping into more scalable um, partnerships with government um, and other organizations. What an exciting time for Funda One Day. Um, what is the one thing you wish people knew about the education system in South Africa? I mean, the, the the one the top of my mind really is the South African literacy education system in 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 it's probably not that much different to many other African countries. 
So I think for a very long time, I was living under a rock and I thought some of the challenges and the things that we face as a system is pertaining to just South Africa. It's just a South African problem. Um, but I'm, I'm very soon, very quickly learned that um, it's uh, some of these challenges that we face is general to sort of developing countries, African countries, um, which I think um, raises a lot of um, partnership opportunities across African countries um, to be able to learn from each other and, and, and share from each other. So that's the one, that our problems are not unique. Uh, we're not the ugly stepchild on the continent that, <laughs> um, you know, seemingly struggles to get it right. There are many other countries that are also in a similar position that are also grappling with the same issues that we have. Um, I think um, South Africa has a lot of uh, human capital that gets invested um, into the system, um, but um, we are not really seeing the, the, the outcomes of that investment. If you look at and if you compare sort of our GDP allocations, that's a lot of money, but um, there's a lot of systematical issues um, that we probably need uh, to address. And, 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 and lastly, I want to add, add um, uh, to this point is to say uh, we're trying to fix a political problem through a technical solution, at least for the South African context. So a lot of these things, um, it's more political than than technical, and I think we tend to think that it is because it's a, a, a you know it's a technical problem, and therefore we need technical solutions. Wonderful! Thank you so much, Nangamso. It's been a real pleasure to have you on this podcast. Thank you for listening to our podcast today, and if you liked it, be sure to check out our research at riseprogram.org or follow us on social media at RISE program. You can find links to the research mentions and other work shared under the description for this podcast episode. The RISE podcast is brought to you by the Research on Improving Systems of Education RISE program through support from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.